the dark days are done and the bright days are here my sunny one shines so sincere sunny one so true Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> this is... Uh... John Barber, that was Sarita singing Sonny, and Frank Sinatra saying, here's Johnny, the night he hosted The Tonight Show. Welcome. Welcome to John Barber's World, live in Las Vegas, the home of Steve Wynn, America's most infamous sexual predator of grandmothers. And after more than 20 years, he's been caught with his pants down and demoted, but sadly not to jail, where somebody else could pull his pants down. But you know what? You know what I find more upsetting than that? It's the monumental success today of the science fiction film Black Panther. You know why? What Wynn and his ilk do is, is offend people's bodies. Movies like this, Black Panther, offends people's minds. Do you know how it diminishes the name and purpose of the real Black Panthers. The movie is a cartoon fairy tale. Now, fairy tales of Santa Claus and the American Dream are okay when you're five, but not when you're 25. I'll bet you not one in a thousand folks who see this cartoon will even know who Huey Newton and Bobby Steele are the founders in Oakland, California, of the most important black movement in American history, fighting for free schools and free lunches for their deprived children. Or Fred Hampton, a 21-year-old Black Panther doing the same in Chicago, murdered in his sleep in his underwear by eight Chicago cops and J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. That pathetic, sexual, political pervert who called the Panthers' fight for dignity and equality the most dangerous group in America. The film's escapist fantasy proves more and more what H.L. Macon said to us 70 years ago. Quote, no one ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American people. Unquote. You know how pathetic most of you are. Most Americans would pay for any fantasy and run from any real truth. Americans every day pay over $100 to go to Disneyland over and over, but won't walk into a free library. It is no longer America the beautiful, it's America the dutiful. You know, every day I get emails or messages on Facebook asking, who are the American heroes today? Today, I was hoping for you to meet one. I'll tell you, if I had my way, 
My prospective guest tonight would be starring in that beer commercial. You know, the one about the most interesting man in the world, because indeed, to me, he is one of the most interesting, dedicated to truth men in America. Thomas Paine, the poor son of an English schoolmaker, became the intellectual founder of the revolution with his book, Common Sense. In my prospective guest, eye-opening and mind-expanding book, The People's Advocate, he brought to light the truth behind the major stories that shaped our recent history. Watergate, the Pentagon Papers, Iran-Contra, Karen Silkwood's murder, because he is a lawyer who brought the suits on our behalf. Now, as the founder of the Christic Institute, he is heavily involved in the Lakota People's Law Project, saving them from a potential genocide, not just sitting in his office, but standing beside them on their land. Unfortunately, I would like to say we had a technical difficulty today, and, and he can't be with us. His name is Daniel Sheehan. But actually, we had some physical difficulty. We couldn't find him. So... In any event, what you can do, remember this name because he's promised or his people have said he'd be back in a couple of weeks when they do find him. Go to Daniel Sheehan, Google him. You will see somebody giving the most stirring speeches about everything in America to voter fraud to the John Kennedy assassination. You know, many, many times and we we have this is, I think, the only time that we've lost a guest in about three or four years. And the reason we never lose a guest is because we have the most fantastic radio producer on the Internet. His name is Mike Cannon, and I've never met Mike. And the re only reason I'm doing this show is because years ago I was on one of his shows on BBS radio, and he kept calling me and saying I should do a show. I told him I didn't want to do a show. He said, well, do one a week. I said, I don't want to do one a week said, do one every two weeks. And I said, well, let me think about that. And he called some more. I thought, I'll do what I said if you produce it. Because I would not go to the trouble that he goes through, even to get the most interesting people on, in America on our show. And we've had a lot of them. So I'm deeply, deeply, deeply grateful for that. But many times I said to him, you know, I don't care if nobody shows up. Because what I would like to do one day, I would just like to spend an hour talking to Joe Satilli, not just for the last 15 or 20 minutes of the show, but for the entire show. Joe lives in Oakland. If I had an opportunity and I was in Oakland, I'd hunt him up and I'd take him to the bar and buy him a Boilermaker and listen to him for four hours. He is one of the most articulate, best informed people I know. So I'm sorry that I lost Daniel. More important, I'm sorry that you won't get to hear this magnificent man, but I'm so glad I told you about him. And if you want to stick around for this hour, that's great. If you not, you want to go to YouTube and search out Daniel Sheehan, then go ahead and do that because it's well worth doing. But I'm going to spend my hour talking to one of the most, one of my most admirable people. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you for once again saving my Canadian bacon. <laughs> yeah, well, and your effusive praise will will mitigate the need for me to stretch and stretch. For people who don't know, when you when you're in broadcast. You know, whenever you uh, you have more time than you have material, you get the you take your hands right, and you bring them together, and you just pull them apart like you're doing like you're pulling taffy. 
<laughs> stretch, stretch. I'm, you've been in that position, I'm sure, John, and so have I, where you need to stretch. Um, but thank you for the introduction. And John, as ever, always great to be with you. And look, you are, you know, I know that the people have been selling a lot of beer on uh, pitching the most interesting man in the world. But considering your long career and where you came from and all you went through to get what you achieved and, and the highs and lows and the battles that you fought, I would say it's my pleasure to talk to the most interesting man in the world. And that'd oh be you. My, oh my God, that's, that's so sweet of you. Anyway, tell me, what have you been doing since we talked last? Well, uh, on a personal note, I had some surgery on my toe because I've, you know, years and years of playing basketball. Cause, no, uh, no, years and years of kicking ass. Yeah, but well, I wish. Uh, bone spurring and whatnot. So we have, you know, sort of had my leg up, but I haven't missed the, a day of the rundown. I've gotten that out. And really it's been, um, you know, interesting to see how the Russiagate thing, the Russian probe, the Mueller thing has been playing out over the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really have a dog in the fight. You know, the way I look at it is you have, you have those people who are reflexively supporting Donald Trump. Then you have people on the other side who don't really necessarily support Donald Trump, but reflexively reject the Russia probe because they think it's uh, attempt to cover up the failure of Hillary Clinton. And I call those people disgruntled Democrats or transgressed Democrats, people who feel like the Democratic Party left them. Then you have this big group in the middle. Uh, these are like the intelligence professionals, the Democrats who have suddenly become uh, lovers of the FBI, people who uh, – the neocons who have repurposed themselves. This is one of the most interesting things about the Trump presidency is how guys like Bill Kristol and Max Boot I – I used to call him Max, don't call me Jack Boot uh, because there was never a war he didn't like. Now I'm calling him Max Reboot because he's rebooted himself as kind of a – um, a, a pseudo-democrat. It's kind of funny. So you have all of these people who are teaming around the Mueller investigation. And I think the thing that I've noticed more than anything is the huge amount of speculation that has gone on, on by all parties. Meanwhile, quietly, off in his own little world, Mueller is doing his investigation and he's collecting his facts and he's putting together his cases. And, you know, when the indictment came out last week, I read all 32 or 33 pages of it. And then I read the associated court documents that were posted on DOJ. And when you read it, you realize this guy is conducting an actual investigation. He's gathering facts. But then you see the way everybody responds to it. And there are the histrionics on one side of all the people who say it's totally exculpatory of Donald Trump, including Donald Trump saying that. Then you have all the people on the other side saying it's completely damning of Donald Trump when it was neither. Neither of those things was actually in the indictment. It was one specific set of facts about one specific part of this case that he seems to be pursuing. But the extent to which we've all lost our minds all around the table is to me uh, a source of great comedy uh, and also, you know, you know what, you know, it's like Joe trying to digest all this. I mean, look at all the horrible things that are going on in the country and trying to digest the thing about Russia. It's really like skating on quicksand. You just don't yeah. want to start to get into it. My compliments yeah. to, to you for reading those 32 pages, but all this business about the Russians affecting the election sort of reminds me of, of one of Mort Saul's greatest jokes, and it wasn't his actually. It was a joke written by Bob Hope's head writer. His name was Mort Lockman. And it was at the time all of the Russian Sputniks were going up. 
And Mort wrote this for Bob Hope. And the joke was, you know, with Sputnik up there, it just proves that uh, Russia's German scientists are better than our German <laughs> yeah, scientists. Right, that's right. Well, <laughs> well, listening to all this hokum about the Russians affecting our elections, it, it means the Russian election fixtures are more effective than our American elected election pictures. I mean, look at Florida, for Christ's sake. We wouldn't have had that war criminal, for crying out loud, if they hadn't fixed that. And look at John Kennedy. As much as I absolutely love the man, there must have been fixing going on when they sent down the Chicago mafia to the cold Of course, field. West Virginia and Chicago. I mean, there's, yes, there's, exactly. there's, 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 so, a, great, there's a great... <laughs> line in in uh, Oliver Stone's Nixon, which I think is an underrated film because particularly Anthony Hopkins, with just a tiny little bit of makeup, just he turned he contorted his face and became Nixon in that movie. It's one of the great performances, I think, of all time. Hopkins as Nixon. But the, there's a, a, an advisor to to Nixon played by Five Ish Finkel. And, you know, they the results come in and they've lost the election. And, and Five Ish Finkel's character turns to Nixon and says, Dick, they stole it fair and square. And, <laughs> right. Which. What which a is great pretty, line. Which is pretty much how that that election went, right? And there was a, and that's kind of that that's sort of the bare knuckles, you know, world of politics, and has been for yeah, a long time. You, you know, you remember Ray Walton, the actor who, yeah, of course, was in The Martian. Yes, of course. There's a great, great story that there's a story that almost replicates what you just said. A, a script uh, went to. The executives, they they have to always have the script screened by an executive. And the executive cut out two or three lines of Ray Walton's and sent them back. And the producer called them up and said, why on earth did you cut those lines? And the guy said, a Martian wouldn't talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. See, I mean, that's, that's classic. So, so yeah. many... One, well, thing anyway. I, one thing I do want to say about Russiagate, this, this is the thing that that I think bothers me the most, is that what we hear over and over again, there are two things. One, I hate hearing about the Russians. The Russians did this. The Russians did that. Like there's this ominous group of of people that we could just call the Russians. The Russians are coming. No, no, no. You were talking about a small group of, of covert actors, right? It's like all, when, when people say the, the CIA killed John F. Kennedy. Yeah, that's not quite, quite right. There's actually a small group, JM Wave, a, a sort of a, a rogue operation inside a rogue operation that did it, if you consider the CIA a rogue operation. I just uh, – I like precision, you know what I mean, in language, just to say the Russians. It makes yeah, them sound Yeah, but like you know why they're the making – hey, Joe, it's so obvious. You know why they're making them the bad guys? I mean, it's, it, it, it's like for Trump and the Pentagon, it's not like it's Grenada, which was <laughs> right. Grenada, yes, that right. they could invade right away. They could say that, you know, Grenada is a threat, you know, and create another fake war. They're trying to recreate another unnecessary fake war because Russia is a huge monolith. So this new fake war could last another 10 years. There well, was it, no, it, it, no, I mean, no reason, as Garrison points out in the movie, 
for there ever to be a first wet fake war because with the Russians losing 25 million people, they were no threat to America. What was a threat to America was peace. And well, could, yeah, could you imagine if Henry Wallace had actually been vice president when FDR died? How different post-World War to the post-World they would War have II. they would have shot him they would have gotten him a parade through Dealey Plaza <laughs> well, and they sabotaged him in order to put Truman in to show yeah. you how bad it is Truman didn't know for a year that they had an atom bomb no I mean if anybody does not know about the story of Henry Wallace there's um, a book called uh, Henry Wallace in the American Dream it's a great book but Henry Wallace really was the heir of FDR and when FDR, yeah. FDR, you know, FDR set up this thing called the Four Freedoms and the Four Freedoms was going to basically be the New Deal for the post-World War II world. And among those freedoms was the right of self-determination. And, you know, it, one of the reasons why Churchill liked uh, Truman was because Churchill was able to convince Truman to allow some of the European colonialists to keep some of their post keep their colonies post-war. And, you know, the Dutch went back into Indonesia, and of course, the United States ended up having to go back into in, go back into Indonesia itself. And uh, with the changeover from Sukarno to Suharto, uh, led to a massive massacre inside Indonesia because it was going commie when it really wasn't going commie because Sukarno was actually a nationalist. He wasn't a uh, uh, he wasn't really a communist, much like Ho Chi Minh was probably far more of a nationalist than he was a communist, at least in terms of in the geopolitical sense i mean he was politically a communist but really what he cared about was nationalism and the united states has often found itself in the in the wake of world war ii fighting on the side of those forces that want to suppress nationalism in favor of you know basically having a a functionary there so that corporations can go in and rob the place blind so the other thing about russiagate that i do want to get to that i hear all over and over again is they attacked our democracy. And I think this is, right? this is something that you've alluded to, right? Because if we look back at the way our democracy has functioned, you know, even going back, as you point out, to, to Kennedy's uh, 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 victory in 1960, our democracy is is a bit overrated, right? <laughs> in terms of its, of its ability to function. Well, I, I, you know, Mark Twain said if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let us do it. <laughs> they wouldn't let us do it. But I think so, so there you go. There, there is no democracy. It's an oligarchy, and everybody in the in America absolutely knows. And you know what? Let me. I, I'm going to get to something in your news vandal, and then I'll get back to yeah, yeah. something yeah. I wanted to talk about earlier. You have this wonderful little story in news vandal about a small town in New England that was being raped by the private company that owned the water supply right yes yes it's a it's Hell, okay a, now listen to me that story in a nutshell tells uh, tells every single american how and why their democracy does not work when the citizens are brought against one corporation so tell us that brief story. It's yeah, heartbreaking. This, yeah, this is a, a – I'm not sure if it's going to be a cover story because this is for the March issue of 
the Atlantic, but of course I'm accessing it online. It's called America is not a democracy, how the United States lost the faith of its citizens and what it can do to win them back. It's by Yasha Monk. And it's the story of Oxford, Massachusetts, where uh, they basically were, they had this terrible water service. Everybody was, was trying to, to do something about it. And, you know, when they, when they were actually in the process of, of voting, right in like the city council a one of the lobbyists for the for uh aquarian which is the company actually pulled the fire alarm yeah hold it hold it before you get to that before you get to that you mess you must talk a bit about the prologue and the fact was that the city council and the residents of that community were raising the millions of dollars to buy that company that's right. And it looked like it was going to be approved. Okay, back to the fire yeah, alarm. And when it was about to be approved, the lobbyist pulled the fire alarm. And, you know, actually, I'll just read. The company denied that the lobbyist was acting, acting on its behalf when it pulled the fire alarm. It also denies that its rates were abnormally high or that it provides poor service. Some Oxford residents support, supported Aquarian and others opposed the buyout because they feared the cost and co complication of the town running its own water company would be too much. But many residents, liberal and conservative, were frustrated by the process. The vote they felt hadn't take, taken place on a level playing field. It was a violation of the sanctity of our local government by big money, said Jen Cassie, a former chairman of the Board of Selectmen for Oxford. Their messiah is the bottom line and not the health of the local community. And I say that as a Republican, someone who is in favor of local business. So basically, they, you know, their, their attempt to take control of their own water system was subverted by Aquarian, this large corporation, and there's some other people in town, and, and then you start and, to wonder. And that perfect example of how they cannot reclaim their democracy because of corporations, they had no business, the Supreme Court, to rule that corporations were people. They are not people. Well, this is a crucial piece of jurisprudence along the, the, the path from what we think of as democracy. And when we think about democracy, I think our, we have this sort of salad days, halcyon dream of America in the 1950s, you know, that large middle class. And, you know, when we look at the 1950s, you look at the underbelly of the 1950s, there's a lot of negative stuff happening there. This is, that's pre-civil rights. That's still Jim Crow. There are, that's still, you know, women uh, uh, have very, very few, um, uh, they're not able to be competitive in the workplace. They're not even often allowed in the workplace in the 1950s. So there are still problems in the 1950s, but when we think of America at sort of its high point, that's America that goes all the way into probably the death of John F. Kennedy, right? That's kind of the end point of that little golden era from the end of World War II to, yeah. to, to, the, to the mid 60s, because it lasts about a year or two after, and then we get involved in Vietnam, and everything falls apart. But the transformation of America into an oligarchy, I think, really begins with the election, election of Ronald Reagan. And if you look at charts of wealth inequality, you can see that the top one to two percent and then the mass, the vast middle class on a chart. And they're sort of even, you know, the, the income is going up and up and up over time after the end of World War II. And then 1980 happens. And I swear, you just Google income inequality since 1980. You will find numerous charts. There is a massive gap that opens up in 1980. I think you're absolutely right, because I remember it very distinctly. That's when I had real people on the air. And I think inverse rates were around 22 or 23 
percent and the air traffic controllers went on strike yes and he literally destroyed the union get rid of them and just hire ringers and that's what they did that began the collapse of the labor unions in the united states who were no longer a force and then it was deregulation and they deregulated everything and now it looks like they may be selling off airports in the united states i mean look is there i i when i saw that i i could not help laughing would there be any more perfect endpoint for Reagan National Air, Airport than for it to be privatized and sold off? They're all, they've already sold off dozens and dozens of roads. You can't drive through California without paying a fortune to go anywhere now. Well, and I mean, this is this and is those, what the, this is Donald Trump's infrastructure program, which is he's calling it a 1.5 trillion dollar infrastructure plan. When actually the federal government's going to put up about 200 billion, and they say the rest should come from state and local. Uh, funding. Well, state and local funding is not actually able to run massive debts and deficits like Donald Trump's budget is and like the debts and deficits that came under Obama and the debts and deficits that came under George W. Bush and the debts and deficits that came under Reagan and uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. So where would they turn to get that money? They will have to go to private equity. And guess where private equity is? Private equity like, like uh, Blackstone is is a partnering with Jared Kushner to bring Saudi money in to have them help and fund this infrastructure. So what can they do? They can actually create privatized infrastructure at the state and local level that would then be toll infrastructure. That is a, I mean, if you're looking for something that's going to be a long-term earner, great return on investment, what's better than privatizing roads and bridges around the United States so that you can bank on having tolls collected each and every day in perpetuity and then you can use that reliable income to then leverage borrowing more money so that you can engage in more speculation and that's what the financialized economy that we live under that's how it functions and that's the financial economy that's been given to us first by reagan and the deregulation you talked about and the breaking of the of the unions but also that that process was really completed under bill clinton Absolutely. The worst president in American history. But I want to get back to the notion that the so-called golden era might have ended with the murder of John Kennedy. And certainly the end of democracy ended with the murder of John Kennedy. Last week, I spent two days in New York. I'd been invited by a New York University media professor by the name of Mark Crispin Miller to go back and speak to his class, which I did. Uh, And uh, I... um, a couple of times I sounded a little too much like George Carlin than rather than myself, because ordinarily I never, ever swear, except on, when I'm on a golf course. But a couple of times I I let loose. It, it, and, and, you know, it, it, when talking to kids who are 19 or 20 years of age, it's like you're talking ancient history. They don't even know what it is that you're talking about. So at one point I brought up the business of the useless waste of estrogen with that woman's march that had no lasting effects. And it offended a couple of the uh, the girls. And I said, listen, you know, all of this was the main spokespeople, again, were actresses out of Los Angeles, California. OK. And I said, as actresses, they were talking about their bodies. Well, what about the bodies of men? Or what about the bodies of children? You want to know something they should have been doing what Aristophanes wrote about 5,000 years ago. Well, they didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, Aristophanes wrote a play called Lysistrata. 
And she, they were fighting the Peloponnesian War. And she says, hey, soldiers, don't you have sex anymore with any of your soldier friends, or husbands or lovers, until they stop the war? And I said, imagine, we would still be hearing it today if some actresses in Hollywood were smart enough to talk about Liz Estrada and stand out in the street that were there were a million of you women out there on the street. And if they had just said, stop the war, stop making love to these soldiers until this was over, we'd still be hearing about it. And they, these women would still be denigrated. It wouldn't matter. They would have spoken the truth. What, what have we learned or gained from that useless, wasted, wasted march? So anyway, the, one of the co-speakers with me was a nice, quiet fellow, much quieter than me, Jerry Pelikoff. Pel Pel and another very nice guy named Russ Baker, whom I think you worked for or with at one time. I, for a short time, I worked for his uh, website as a contributing editor. Yeah, I, I, uh, and he was really nice. He took me afterwards to a really nice restaurant. And I'll tell you what I love. The very back room was one of these tiny cabarets that you see in the back of the movie cabaret. Fantastic girl performer on stage. And they have a lot of these in New York. Well, the owner came up to me and he said, Mr. Barber, would you come here one day and spend an hour and an hour and a half and just tell us a bunch of your stories in the cabaret, which I may well do in the summer when I finish, uh, when I finish, uh, uh, finish editing this. And then the next day, uh, Mark Crispin Miller and a lady named Libby Landros, who did this fabulous documentary on Donald Trump, I mean, she only started, she was trying to do it as a pilot because she thought she could get it on a network talking about the rich and famous, you know, uh, like that English guy, the lives of the rich and the famous, only she'd really focus on them. And quite accidentally, she discovered he was a crook. And, uh, and so what happened is she couldn't air it for 14 years because of lawsuits. Anyway, they're doing a wonderful documentary about the four assassinations, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. And I suggested they call it the CIA, America's Serial Killers, which they may not, they, they may just do. Now, they thanked me for saying that. And I said, that's not my line. That line came from a friend of Mark Crispin Miller's who wrote Conspiracy Theory in America. I heard him in a speech one day in Florida use that phrase. Nobody has ever connected the dots of those four murders like this man did. And he said they are serial killers. So that to me was quite inspiring. They filled me for, filled me for about three hours. Now, one of the things that I would like to get to, I have a very difficult time, as I mentioned earlier, reading all the stuff of Russiagate, as interested as I am in it. It's because not only do I think I can't digest it, worse, I don't think I can do anything about it, which I can't do. It's I have been unable to get at all past one paragraph of that horrifying shooting in Parkland, other than the fact that Donald Trump did not fire immediately the head of the FBI because evidently there were like 60 some odd reportings from people on Facebook, the neighbors taking videos of this guy saying what he was going to do. And they never investigated, they, they never stopped them. And instead, Trump does nothing. I mean, he, uh, to me, he should have immediately fired the head of the FBI. But the reason I can't get into it 
is because when the shooting started here in Vegas months ago, I was, you know, watching the news as it was happening. And there were witnesses saying there was another shooter on the ground shooting at us. And the news lady interrupting them saying, no, there weren't. They came from the, uh, from the, hotel, uh, from the hotel. And when the woman tried to repeat the fact there were shooters from behind it, they, they were cut off. And there were many, many people that night who spoke that way. And you could see Lombardo, the sheriff, literally unraveling on camera with the press conference that he had until he weren't turned into Willie Loman. People have to be. <laughs> and now we're finding out they, they are admitting there has to be somebody else involved with that shooting. So I have, I can't even get into that because everywhere I go, Joe, people ask me, tell me about the shootings in Vegas. I said, I'm still working on the shootings in Dealey Plaza. So I would like your impressions of everything that happened in Parkland. It's tough. You know, I, you, you bring up the FBI and Christopher Ray, who was his appointee and, you know, why wasn't, uh, something done. It seems like there, we're at a point at which there are three possibilities. One is we raise the bar for purchasing guns. We make it harder to get guns. The other thing we do now, that's a constitutional issue. That's a that's a rights issue. Then the other issue is, do we lower the bar for law enforcement to abscond people that they believe are a danger due to psychological instability? That is another constitutional rights issue. The third possibility is we do nothing and we say that the cost of doing business in America is periodic bloodletting. And I I don't know that I have an answer for this because I think I think they're all three have have their own inherent hazards as a result of uh, engaging any one of them. You know, well, first, first of all, let's take the case of this kid. He's out there practicing with a gun, and he's practicing at uh, – And oh, by the way, one of his, some of his practicing was through an NRA-funded and sponsored gun club. And that's and, exactly right. Now, is it not possible then when he's doing this illegally in his backyard and the neighbor sends video to the local FBI and said this guy's a threat – or he's on Facebook where he says he's going to turn into a high school killer. Is it not possible then for the FBI to go, the guy has an AR-15 or whatever he has, and find out, does he legally have a right to have this gun? If it, Now, I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, I understand that the NRA lobby is so strong that they've made it allowable for mentally ill yes. people to buy assault weapons. Is that true? That's correct. And he, the assault rep weapon he purchased because it was a long gun, it's harder to buy a pistol, but if it's technically a long gun, he, you know, according to Florida law, he was able to walk in and buy it. He could buy a gun. He, his gun was purchased legally. And that's the last, that, that's the last data that I have. Well, I don't know if they're going to, you know, try and find some way to spin it and say that he didn't, but no, he did buy it legally. And there was one um, modulated restriction under President Obama to try and uh, make it more difficult for people with demonstrable mental illness to, to purchase guns. 
And and one of the first things that Donald Trump signed become um, becoming president was a removal of that restriction. So, and that was that was a that was on the NRA wish list. And you know Donald Trump made no bones about being supportive of the NRA and embracing the support of the NRA, which I think spent somewhere around thirty million dollars. Uh, both for him and against Hillary Clinton in the last election. So, um, look, I mean, here's the thing, though, John. I mean, we can blame the NRA, and there's that's fine. That's something that that we can do. We could we can blame the FBI, but doesn't it seem like there's something uh, deeper to this? That there's something a little bit more emblematic. You know, I wrote a piece after the the Las Vegas shooting called Uncle Sam is is the biggest gun nut of them all. And when we think about the way our country operates at home and abroad, we are a country that is awash in violence. We are awash in guns. This kind of gun violence is is uh, part of our founding mythology. It is part of the winning of the West. You know, one of the reasons why gun ownership was was um, has been so strong over the course of the years, particularly uh, uh, as a as sort of an adjunct of law enforcement, is because of fears of slave uprisings and then later uh, and, um, uh, of sharecroppers and up, uh, up, uh, uprisings and to help enforce Jim Crow, which is one of the reasons why you brought up the Black Panthers at the beginning of the show, why when Black Panthers started running around with guns and displaying guns openly, all of a sudden there was a there was a blip and a move for restrictions on gun ownerships ownership in the late 60s, early 70s. Hmm, why was that? Well, they, they started murdering the blacks for crying out loud, and it's been right. proven in court. But they did nothing to stop this kid who said openly he was going to become a high school killer. That is enough to take that gun away from him. Well, you would think, and I think that this is, you know, you mentioned the woman's march, and I understand your skepticism, and I think the Lysistrata example is a great example. Unfortunately, I think that this is a country that is completely numb to its involvement in wars around the world, which is one of the reasons why I led off today's uh, rundown with an amazing piece from the New York Times. And yes, the New York Times is the New York Times, but occasionally they do something that's worthwhile. And this story titled An Endless War, Why Four U.S. Soldiers Died in a Remote African Desert about the Niger attack and about the ever-expanding ever use of the authorization for military force after 9-11 to go from being about going after Osama bin Laden and how it has morphed into a, a global war against a, basically an, an, an ever-evolving and, and seemingly invisible enemy. Um, you know, we are numb as a country to the extent to which we are at war with the world. And, you know, one of the, you know, I hate to keep bringing it back, but I think one of my one of the one of the few uh, axes I have to grind against the Russiagate story is the extent to which the Russiagate story has pushed out of cable news all other stories. Everything else is gone. You know, the United States is involved in 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 combat in the Horn of Africa, in Syria, in Niger. The United States has has people based around the world. There are things going on all over the place. And instead of deploying reporters to report on what the United States is doing at, at home and abroad, 
they're doing the easy thing, which is the daily melodrama of Russiagate. And it's helping – if there's any disservice in the Russiagate coverage, the main disservice is that it is, has helped reinforce the numbness and ignorance of the American people to the extent to which they are the beneficiaries of a globe-spanning empire. Joe, they, uh, American newspapers and television stations do not have assigned reporters. They only have embedded reporters. Well, or they have – if they haven't signed assigned reporters, you, they, they basically have three people in London, and that's your global bureau. That's you know there was a time when Ted Turner started CNN. He had this vision of creating an American version of the BBC, and and in 1991, 92, 93, 94, he had people in in on every continent. They had reporters in in dozens upon dozens of countries. So if something happened in Kenya, there was somebody on the ground in Kenya. If something happened in Indonesia, there was somebody on the ground in Indonesia. If something happened in Mongolia, he had Mike Choi in China who could actually get to Mongolia very, very quickly. I, I remember that. What do you think happened to change Ted Turner's mind other than to become one of the landest, largest landowners in No, America? I don't think that that's what happened. I think that what happened was is that Ted Turner got bought out in the Time Warner AOL merger and he was sold a bill of goods and it was basically um, they bait it was a bait and switch and they destroyed CNN on him despite the assurances that they gave him that that his vision was going to remain in place and when Time Warner AOL happened they basically gutted uh, his his dream he, he was tra and they pushed him out and then they pushed him out it was basically a hostile takeover if you get yeah, into the into the function of how Time Warner AOL happened, because at that time there was this sense that the internet was happening, and 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 CNN did not have the internet presence that AOL had. AOL was the big internet kid on the block, and there was this belief that by bringing these things together in what was then called corporate synergy, one of those wonderful buzzwords that means nothing, uh, which basically means we're about to rob you blind, um, that they were going to be able to translate those three properties, Time, AOL, and CNN, into a new media company for the 21st century. When really what it was was kind of a typical corporate raider, you know, get in there, um, uh, sell off assets, maximize profits. Yeah. And it was but very good. You want to know something getting back to the business of Parkland? I have visions. I have seen a couple of short videos of some of these students speaking about the fact that this is going to be the last mass school shooting and that they're going to march on Washington. You want to know something? If they continue to do that and they call it the Children's March for Peace, they could probably get two or three million students to join them in Washington, D.C. And I just hope they can continue to recruit to do that. Now, maybe they're talking against school violence. That's good enough. But to see a million or two million students, the children's march on Washington and the children should lead them. I mean, I think that could be absolutely stirring 
And the truth is, it could change America. And they don't even know that. No, I agree with you. I actually think that there, and I mentioned the Women's March, and putting aside the celebrity aspect of the Me Too movement, millions of women did come out in March. And what has happened since then, really in spite of the efforts of the leadership of the Democratic Party, is that women on the at the local level, at the grassroots level, are replicating something that the Christian coalition and the evangelical movement did in the 80s. When they realized that Ronald Reagan was not going to deliver for them, the, the evangelical political movement started at the school board level, at the state uh, at the state house level, at the the county board of controllers level, and they started to run people in all of these races. And they started a grassroots bottom-up process whereby they were able to, over time, fill state and local political offices with people who were like-minded, which is one of the reasons why we ended up with the gerrymandering we, we've got at this point and why we right. have so many Republicans who control state houses. It's because of this grassroots evangelical-led movement. And what – you know, I've been charting this, following this on my on, – on the side – because a lot of this, you know, it's a little bit arcane to get into the rundown all the time. But there are women right now organizing at the state and local level, and they are filling the ballots uh, in states all around the country. And so you're going to have this massive group of women, unlike the year of the the two times we heard about the year of the woman in the 90s when, hooray, America elected three women to the Senate. And we're going to call it the yeah. year of the woman. Ooh. No, no, we're talking about a huge wave. And what's interesting, I've noted, is that the the Washington, D.C. level Democratic Party is having a very hard time raising money. Well, what's happening is, is that money is actually being raised by local grassroots activists, and that money is going to the state and local level as opposed to going to the Democratic Party that is being run by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, which I think is a fascinating dynamic because the one place that we have not seen any kind of grassroots revolt or change is inside the Democratic Party. The Republican Party has had a few waves of that. It had the Goldwater wave, which became the Reagan revolution. Then we had right. the Christian coalition wave. And then uh, upon the election of uh, Obama, you had the Tea Party wave. These have all been internal grassroots politics, which have often made the Republican Party a far more interesting party for somebody who's a political junkie, because there's just some, a lot more action going on there. I think what we are seeing is the possibility of a bottom-up grassroots revolution inside the Democratic Party because the one takeaway from the last election is that putting aside all of the – they came and attacked our democracy and the Russians, the real – the thing that everybody knows is that the Democrats ran the only candidate who could possibly lose to Donald Trump. And the people who attached themselves to that, to Hillary Clinton's candidacy – are themselves looking old and decrepit and without any ideas. And I think it's really notable that the tax plan, which was the least popular tax cut in the history of tax cuts, has now over the course of time moved from about 32 to 33% approval rating to about 50 to 51% approval rating. And one of the reasons why is because the Democratic Party has never offered a policy alternative to a tax cut that the American people did not want. And that's because the Democratic Party has completely run out of ideas to offer. The only thing they've got 
is Russiagate, which is one of the things that's tainting Russiagate because they are running on on an investigation that they aren't even running. Mueller's well, the, running Demo the Democrats had to notice, as anybody could notice, that Bernie Sanders not only could have Trump, Trump, he could have trumped Hillary. Yes. There was yes. no question about that. He yes. had 12 million people. So the fact that he bowed off just absolutely, absolutely broke my heart. What I like, two things I'd like to chat with you about. And again, there in your rundown, and I started talking about it at the top in my, in my opening. And that was the business of the Black Panther movie. Yeah. I just, to me, uh, you know, uh, certainly I'm glad that people are getting work and that there's money being made. But God, how awful is that, that millions and millions of people are swarming to see a cartoon? Well, you're probably talking to the wrong person on this one. One, I haven't seen the movie yet. So, <laughs> so that's, you know, I can't render a critical judgment uh, as a as as a aficionado of film as I am. Uh, the other side of it is that I think the thing about the Black Panther movie as an idea is that this is the first time you have an African-American hero as an avatar or, or a black hero as an avatar of black experience and not as a sidekick or aspect. What about what about experience. what about Shaft? <laughs> well, no. OK. But yeah, I, look, I love black exploitation films of the early yeah. 70s. Shaft yeah, but they you called know. you know what? They called it a black exploitation film. Here was a great Clint Eastwood character. He's a black. Now, why would they call it black exploitation? Because what it was is they're making a movie so the blacks would go to see it. Do they call them white exploitation films? Well, no, but you know, John, that that's the that's the genre film. You know, what was it? Uh, um, Mario Van Peebles, right? And it was one yeah. of the great innovators of of that of that. Uh, I I've, I'm all about Pam Greer. I love all those movies. Oh my amazing. God, yeah, oh, amazing yeah. movies, amazing movies. But I think the thing about this, there are a few things. One, and I can understand people who are critical of the constant barrage of superhero movies. I mean, we have <laughs> we've gone to super. I mean. You know, you know, I've I watch Turner Classic movies all the time. Why? Because I like to have movies that are about about human beings involved in conversations and relationships and experiences. Right? I mean, I watch yeah. them all the time. So, but because of the nature of the film business, to make a lot of money, if you have a lot of actions and explosions, you don't have to do a lot of overdubbing for foreign markets. <laughs> so, well, you know, the thing is. It's 45-year-olds who are going to see this stupid film. But those are 45-year-olds, and this is, this is, again, why I might not be a good person to ask about this. These are 45-year-olds who grew up on comic books. And comic books were, for a lot of people, not just an escape, not, not just like you know a, sort of a Pulp Fiction escape, but particularly like in the Marvel universe and the DC universe of the 1970s, yeah. a lot, you know, in Marvel, there are a lot of storylines about evil corporations testing things on human beings to try and turn them into super soldiers or to try and try. And <laughs> yeah. Turn, yeah. So 
I think what happens in a lot of these movies, and particularly in in comic books of the '70s in particular, and if you look at there's a uh, there's a comic book called Green Lantern, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and in there there were a lot of things brought, a lot of issues explored on drugs and crime and inner city poverty. These were places where stories that weren't being told otherwise could be told because they were flying under the radar from the mainstream culture. And so I think for a lot of people, that creates a bit of a hook that they respond to. And also, the hero story, then this is getting back into Joseph Campbell and the hero with a thousand faces. Right. You know, one of the things yeah. that people, a lot of people don't realize about Star Wars is that George Lucas based Luke Skywalker off of his readings of Joseph Campbell, who is one yeah. of the great scholars of mythology and the history of mankind. Yes. And Luke Skywalker was built off of that. So it's called the power of myth. Power of myth. And so I think that there is an element here that is appealing, particularly to African Americans today, who, let's be honest, since over the last seven or eight years, since the election of Barack Obama, we could say we can go with all the different reasons why and all the countervailing theories or whatever. But but African-American experience has come under the microscope in many, many ways over the last eight to ten years, and Donald yes. Trump has heightened that. So I think I for can, them to have that. a mythic hero, they are responding to the first opportunity for them to have a black Luke Skywalker that they can – Well, I can, I, can just see, I can just see all these Jewish movie executives who own Disney – sitting around saying, you know, we didn't give the blacks the vote for God hundreds of years. We didn't give them equality and jobs for hundreds of years. Well, now that they got all that, why, you know, let's give them a, one of our, our, our cartoons now. Let's give them a cartoon movie they can watch. What do we call it? Black Panther. Remember the Black Panthers? Oh, God, yeah, what a great title. I mean, it's just, it's just horrifying to me but i do want to get something that's in the tail end of your news vandal that i have never seen in the news vandal that i can recall and it's two or three articles about the universe now i gotta tell you something i am a universe junkie and now i don't believe in a god but i just i mean i don't know why or how an acorn becomes an oak tree so how could i possibly imagine how that is created or how the universe is created. That is all a waste of time, but investigating the universe is just a glory, you know? And there's, there's, there should be one day of every year where everybody has to stop at sundown <laughs> or sunrise and look at the sunrise or the sunset, not to pray, but just to wonder at the magnificence and the mystery of it all. And nobody yeah. would ever need to go to church again or go to a synagogue again or go to or go to mosque again. Now, when I can't find something on Turner Classic Movies, I go to the Science Channel to watch all this stuff about the universe. And you close News Vandal. And that was – at first I went by the Black Panther stuff. And then I, I spent my time reading the stuff at the end. Why did you do that? And I must tell you, it is so interesting. A little too deep for me, but my God, I read every word of it. Well, you know, if there is a nice run of stories that all interact with, with one another, I keep them and I try and get them into the odds and ends. That's what the odds and ends are for. 
And I am very interested in something called cosmopsychism, which is the idea that maybe the universe itself is a consciousness. And and what we think that oh, what we, I, I hate I hate to interrupt you. I'm just going to tell you something that Mark Twain threw us. Mark Twain said that he felt that all the planets in the universe or all of those bodies were like cells in a body like we have billions of cells in our body. And he thought that the body belonged to God. And these were the cells and Earth was one of the cancers in the body. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, you know, we do wonder if if the plant, if the Mother Earth is trying to reject us as a disease right now. But uh, I mean, is that not what what climate change really is? Is 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 the planet saying to humankind enough? Enough is enough. Enough you know, is enough. Can, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry about that. I would just suggest everybody get a hold of today's edition of News Vandal and read those last two or three stories. They are so, so interesting. So next time, Joe, we'll take some time out to explore what you're just talking about because I find it fascinating. So tell us what you have planned next. Uh, well, I have a couple things I'm working on writing-wise. And uh, the uh, my crew show, which I've been doing, Crew FM show since 2011, is going to come to an end this week because Crew is going off the air, sadly. And um, uh, But you could tune in. On Friday to Crew FM, it's a, it would be a, from noon to three. I'm doing three hours with my cohort James Moore there, and it's going to be a wide-ranging three-hour. Who knows what to uh, end my run there at Crew. Wonderful. And two weeks from now, Joe will be joining me to talk to one of the most interesting men by far in the world, and again one of the bravest, Norman Finkelstein, who has a fabulous book out simply called. Gaza. So thank you all for tuning in. As Ed Murray used to say, good night and good luck.